นโมทัสสะกูวะตุวะระหะตุวะสัมมาสัมบุตทัสสะนโมทัสสะกูวะตุวะระหะตุวะสัมมาสัมบุตทัสสะนโมทัสสะกูวะตุวะระหะตุวะสัมมาสัมบุตทัสสะพุทธังธรรมังสังฆังนามัสสะพระพุทธเจ้าทั้งหมดทั้งหมดทั้งหมดทั้งหมดทั้งหมดทั้งหมดทั้งหมดทั้งหมดทั้งหมดทั้งหมดทั้งหมดดัมมะทิชชิงอันฮาวฟอร์สซังค์คัลเลนเดอร์เพจวิชทุกคนที่ที่ได้รับคัลเลนเดอร์และได้ดูอันนี้ได้เรียนอาจารย์ชาร์ลส์ทิชชิงส์เอ๋อที่บอกว่าคุณได้รับความสุขและความทุกข์ในแบบนี้ในทะเลและในน้ำและในน้ำและในน้ำและในน้ำและในน้ำและในน้ำและในน้ำและในน้ำและในน้ำและในน้ำและในน้ำและในน้ำและในน้ำและในน้ำและในน้ำและในน้ำและในน้ำและในน้ำและในน้ำและในน้ำและในน้ำและในน้ำและในน้ำและในน้ำและในน้ำและในน้ำและใน If you want to know Dhamma, then you must look into these things. You won't find Dhamma looking elsewhere. So, to avoid falling into the mistake of making these teachings too uh, magical or mystical. Uh, let's uh, let's read the word Dhamma there for uh, reality. That's, you know, if you want to know reality, if you want to accord with actuality, that's what's being referred to. Let's not make these uh, teachings so mysterious that they're uh, unattainable or beyond reach. It's, uh, The Buddha himself, and of course uh, Ajahn Chah, likewise, wanted us to feel encouraged uh, by the teachings, encouraged to, with the sense that there is something we can do about our predicament. We're not victims. Uh, this is not hopeless. It's never hopeless. So long as we're conscious, so long as we have a body mind, uh, there is that which can be done, uh, which makes a difference. Uh, That we can cultivate consciousness in a way that leads to increase harmony, increase benefit for oneself and for others, and we can always contribute. And, and uh, in this short teaching, Ajahn Chah is pointing out that if we're interested in this, if we want to know how to generate real benefit for oneself and for others, then Then what we need to be looking at is this body and mind. And another trap, another mistake that is uh, made, not really in uh, religious communities, and spiritual environments, is that you can uh, turn the teachings into an exercise of theory only and. Can invest a lot in 
concepts and ideas about reality. We can assume because we appease our intellectual curiosity, we manage to appease our mental anxieties, that we've got it sorted. But all the concepts in the world don't necessarily align our being with reality. Like you can be sitting at your computer and planning on a trip for climbing a mountain and when it actually gets there, to really climb the mountain, it's a whole different experience. All the planning in the world, all the thinking, all the ideas, all the imagination in the world is not the same thing as mountain climbing. When you're out there on the mountain, you, you, you've got to be physically fit. You're spending a lot of time in front of the computer um, planning and thinking and um, conceptualizing the, the route that you're going to take up the mountain and actually you can end up just, uh, becoming physically uh, diminished and weakened. And when you're on the trip, actually climbing the mountain takes a lot of strength and you need to learn how to, you need to be able to cooperate with your companions and trust each other and and to have the right kind of sustenance and to be able to deal with lack of oxygen and the various difficulties that arise when you're doing serious mountain climbing. And so investing too much in ideas about reality, uh, Ajahn Chah is trying to direct us away from that. If you want to know reality, then... Look into this body and mind, not investing too much in concepts. Having the right concepts, of course, having done the preparation, but not investing too much in concepts, not investing too much in other people's experience, not investing too much in teachers and teachings. Another uh, trap we can easily fall into and believing that somebody else has got it sorted and and maybe they have got it sorted, but just worshipping somebody else and believing in somebody else and following somebody else is not, that's not taking the journey. And so the Buddha was very emphatic that he wanted us to realise what he realised, which is uh, the complete freedom from all conflict, all confusion. And this is a possibility from his perspective. But we need to take the journey. So... As with concepts, also with teachers and teachings, not investing too much in that. Not investing too much in special situations. Sometimes on this journey, people get the idea that there's special places. They've got to, they've got to go to Bodhgaya. Bodh Gaya is, is like, you know, a holy place. And, uh, if you haven't been to the place where the Buddha was enlightened, then you're not a real Buddhist. That's, uh, Bodh Gaya in northeast India is, it symbolizes something, but that's not the birthplace of the Buddha. That's, that's the birthplace of the physical Buddha, but that's not the point. The Buddha warned very emphatically about paying too much attention to him as a person. 
Likewise, uh, the place of Bodh Gaya, uh, investing too much in the place, investing too much in retreats, going on retreats. The idea we've got to do retreats with such and such a teacher in such and such a location. All of these need to be seen as useful preparation. Useful preparation, yes. The understanding correctly, yes. Receiving respectfully, attending to the experience of others, benefiting from our teachers and their teachings. And when opportunities arise, yes. Making the most of opportunities for retreats and spending time in spiritual sanctuaries. But then, even then, what we, the real field of investigation is this body-mind. This is what Ajahn Chah is pointing at in this teaching. That, you know, to get interested in this, like here and now, too much interest in concepts, too much interest in teachings and teachers and retreats and other places, and it can very much take us away from this. This. This is where happiness and suffering arises, right here and now in this body-mind. Happiness and suffering that's going to happen in the future, that's not here. We're not really experiencing that. In fact, we never experience the future. We only ever experience this here and now. We don't even experience the past. What we remember about the past, we're experiencing here and now. So this is our field of investigation. If you want to know reality, if you want to be able to accord with actuality, then we need to look into this, this body and mind. Recently, a friend of our community uh, mentioned to me that they had reached a place where they, they found at last they could really receive themselves where they're at. They, could really, they felt they were able and willing and interested to meet themselves where they're at. And this, the person was explaining how this contrasted with uh, previously where and how uh, they had always been in a, somehow an assumption that there was somewhere to go and something to do and something to become. Uh, a lot of teachings, if we're not careful how we pick them up, they can leave that impression on us that there's something wrong with us as we are, we need to become something more, a new improved version. Well, from a relative perspective, of course we appreciate that there's work to do and things to improve on, there's no question about that. But if we lose touch with the ground that we stand on, if we lose touch with here and now, uh, then, quite frankly, we're not all here. And that's literally the case. And, and often in 
spiritual circles, a lot of discontentment. And a lot of that discontentment is born out of this view that there's somewhere to go and something to do. There's something wrong with me now and I need to be somebody else, become something else. The Buddha, again, was very explicit about this, bhava tanha, craving to become, there's there's like a toxin in consciousness, a warp in consciousness. It causes us to see mistakenly. We misperceive situation, we misperceive reality, we don't see actuality, we don't accord with what is when we're caught up in this momentum of what he called bhava tanha, or craving to become. So craving to become something, a new, improved version of me, the Buddha wanted us to see that, to recognize that that's a warp, that's a distortion in our seeing. We're not going to be able to see clearly. And so anyway, this fellow was sharing with me how at last he found himself in a place where he felt he was interested in and he was able and willing to meet himself where he's at. And that's great. I was really happy to hear that. If he was just telling me about another amazing concentration experience he had, I might have fallen asleep. I don't know. It's not necessarily particularly interesting. It's a Simply this is really what needs to be received. It's only when we receive this, here and now, as it's happening, the whole body-mind, without any judgment, without taking sides for or against, just like this, we can read this, we're in a position to understand this, and then let go of this. Only when we meet ourselves where we're at can we let go of ourselves and really move on. Now, it may well be that if we try very hard and it's true, we can learn a few tricks and have some interesting experiences and part of us might feel like we're ready to move on but maybe we've left other parts of us behind and and that certainly does happen regularly, often. At least in Buddhist meditation circles, people become even more divided than they were to start off with and uh, so the evidence of that is they're actually not genuinely more contented and grateful and at ease. And finding ourselves in a place where we can meet ourselves as we are, receive ourselves and then let ourselves go. Again, this is what this short teaching by Chinchara is, is pointing at. Mm. Not overly idealising about how we should be. Again, ideals like concepts about the path of practice, like teachers and teachings, these certainly all have their place. Ideals about liberation, irreversible, unshakable wisdom and compassion, that's a really inspiring, uplifting ideal, the possibility of of such realization. But the ideal is not the reality. You know, as in Sumato, some of you may have read, he often used to talk about ideals as like stars that we use if you're in a boat sailing and you orient yourself, you get your direction by looking at the stars, but it never occurs to you that you should be going to reach the stars. 
the stars are there to help us get our bearings, to help us go in the right direction. And so it is with ideals of how we should be, how we could be. Uh, wonderful uh, ways of orienting our capacity as human beings, our capacity for imagination, imagining how we could we could be free from hatred, free from craving, free from confusion. Well, that's that's great to be able to imagine such things, a great motivator. And our imagination is inspired and uplifted and energized by ideals, especially if they're articulated by people who know what they're talking about. But attaching to ideals, becoming idealistic, that's losing the ground, losing this place, losing the perspective that is essential. And sometimes it happens in monasteries that people send us their spiritual CVs and and they, they tell us how what stage of realization they're at and at what point they entered which jhana, first, second, third, fourth jhana and and then became sotapanna at this stage and sakadagami at that stage and and uh, working towards the next level and whatever. And that's a very tricky territory to find oneself in. Of course, it's actually true. Well, then, wish you all the best. But for many people who speak so casually about their attainments and spread around their spiritual CV, actually, it's an expression of their, once again, their discontentment. Being identified in the world of imagination is not the point. That's misusing imagination, misusing ideals, goals, ideals, imagination, all of these, if we hold them carefully, skillfully, really skillfully, they can serve to motivate us rightly. So how do we hold these ideals and goals and aspirations skillfully? Well, we develop the spiritual faculties. And once again, this invitation, this encouragement from Ajahn Chah to look into this matter of this experience, this, this body and mind to get interested in this, to learn how to read it. How do we learn to read it? We learn to read it by developing the spiritual faculties, and which, of course, most of you will have heard me talk about many times, and at least as far as I'm concerned, the three primary tools of mindfulness, sense restraint and wise reflection. And that if we don't have these tools, then it's really, again, very difficult. It's like trying to read a book when, when you... Your, say, your eyes are not working properly. If you're long-sighted and your arms are not long enough, you can't actually get the printed focus. You can't get access to the information. And if we're interested in reading and studying this body and mind, which our teachers are encouraging us to do, and 
then we need to cultivate. This is work. This is you know, sometimes that aspect of the spiritual journey, which is you know, spoken about, the, the benefits, the fruits, the joy, the ease, the contentment, the well-being. Of, of course, uh, that's an attractive aspect of the spiritual life, but with any other aspect of life, uh, there's also other areas, and, and we call it work. And, and sometimes it's true, we can put our feet up and relax and rest. But at other times, you've you got to go out and work. And sometimes work is very hard. And the spiritual work, mm-hmm. like cultivating skillfulness and mindfulness, sense restraint, wise reflection, yeah. sometimes we just can't be bothered. Yeah, now, if we had the good fortune of growing up with a, a really suitable spiritual education and, and we're alert to the importance of the inner world and the inner work, and, and so we're, we grow up keen, interested, and naturally inclined to doing this work. But in the world that probably many of us grew up in, the emphasis was simply on material gain, physical well-being. And, and so here we are in, in a world that we've never had so many people so materially well-off, and, and yet I think it's pretty evident that we've never had so many people so confused and anxious and discontented. It's because the material work is only part of the story, the inner work, recognising the inner territory, the heart domain or the spiritual life is a different sort of work. And it, but it is work. It doesn't need to be recognised as work. Mm. Whether we don't feel like being mindful or not doesn't matter. We, we need mindfulness. Mm. We need to be able to pay the right kind of attention at the right time, the right quality of sensitivity, embodied mindfulness, not just conceptual watchfulness, here and now, whole body, mind, careful sense of presence. It takes a discipline of attention to, to do that. And, but it, it's really beneficial. And we have access and skill in using that tool. Mm-hmm. And sense restraint. The, yeah. There's plenty of people around these days who entertain the idea, the perception that they should never have to say no to themselves about anything. And that, of course, is an absolute disaster. You can end up saying what you want when you want. You can cause a lot of harm, a lot of hurt. And doing what you want, you can become a bully or a thief. Acting in ways by body and speech just because we want to, can end up causing ourselves and others a lot of unhappiness. And so sooner or later we need to get the message that the ability to say no is essential. Just because you want to eat something doesn't mean to say that it's good for us. When you're young you can 
probably eat most things and get away with it for a while, but as you get older, the, the results uh, become clearer. We really need to take care of what we put into our bodies. And just because you like to sit in front of a computer and play games or entertain ourselves and distraction doesn't mean to say that it's actually going to generate real benefits. Sometimes we really need to turn the computer off, turn all the gadgets off. Sometimes we need to actually do exercise. I don't want to do exercise. Well, if the body isn't exercised, then the body gets sick. And whether we want it that way or not is completely irrelevant. So the ability to skillfully say no at the right time and the right way is essential in life on all levels. And certainly it becomes very evident in the spiritual journey and the inner journey when, when we have obsessive thoughts or mm. obsessive ill will that we can't let go of and obsessive worry and anxiety that we can't let go of. Yeah. Well, where did that come from? And so, we get interested in studying this body and mind, well, then we start to get a feeling for where it came from. Hopefully, we, before too long, we start to recognize this activity that Buddha referred to as clinging. And clinging, how it leads very directly, immediately, to craving. Desire, in and of itself, is not a problem. Desire is perfectly normal. But when we cling to desire, we create craving. We don't just have normal, wholesome, helpful, understandable wanting. It's just a form of movement, a form of energy. We've got craving, which can drive us crazy. Or aversion. You know. Our body's got an immune system, which in a sense is a form of aversion. If something is invading the body, our immune system says, no, get out. Aversion is perfectly normal, perfectly suitable. But if we cling to that, we create hatred. So normal liking and disliking, if we don't have sense restraint, turns into craving and hatred, and that's really difficult. So these essential tools, and if we're interested in reading the body-mind, the spiritual faculties, mindfulness, sense restraint, and, and wise reflection, likewise, being able to ask the right question at the right time in the right way. Yeah. This is, a, this is a, a really powerful tool in terms of untangling, unhooking ourselves from our attachments. Yeah, they're not again, not necessarily easy. It's, um, it's work. Sometimes we need to encourage ourselves or uh, be encouraged by our good friends, our spiritual companions on the journey, you know, just to make a little bit more extra effort and to ask those questions that mean we're going to be just a little bit more honest with ourselves. Maybe for years we've been thinking that it's somebody else's responsibility that I'm suffering. But if we're willing and able and we've trained ourselves with wise reflection, we find that one day we start asking the question, well, what am I doing? What am I doing that's creating this struggle? How am I contributing to this? There may be external conditions as well, but 
what am I contributing? And growing in honesty is not always easy. We've told ourselves lies long enough, then it becomes a habit. And getting unhooked from those habits, whether it's telling ourselves stories, you know, like the story, I am the body. Well, when the body starts to fall apart, that becomes evidently a very unfortunate story to be telling ourselves. It can feel like I am falling apart, and that's not good news at all. So the sooner we, the sooner we learn to ask the right questions in the right way at the right time, the sooner we have these skills, mindfulness, sensory strength, wise reflection available, and the greater our ability to start reading this condition. As Ajahn Chah said, looking into these things. You start to see craving, how it comes about. Start to see the momentum, the habit patterns of craving and how they contribute to this perception of me. Me and my way. We're seeing this for ourselves, not just reading about it in a book, because we can read about it in a book and it's an interesting concept. You can read about the Buddha's teachings on anatta and so well, that's fascinating and and even be inspired and have confidence as a result of it. But what happens when we start to see this me and my way within this body and mind? That's different again. That's what leads to being able to really let go of me and my way. We can read all about it and still be intensely identified as me and my way, insisting on getting what I want. But if we have the faculties functional enough, not necessarily perfect, but functional, start to see where this me and my way comes from. It's we're doing it, we're doing it. This is, this is not something we were born with, actually. We were born with potential. We are born with a nervous system and potential to experience sight, sound, smell, taste, touches and mental impressions. The sixth sense impressions that we're capable of perceiving and registering and remembering and extrapolating and as the years go by, we accumulate this sense of me. And unless we have a lot of wisdom, we attach to it. Function of most of the popular world religions has generally been about helping people not get too attached to the sense of me, helping to relativize the sense of self. This me and my way, if we really get totally pulled into it, makes us a narcissist. We're really dangerous. We're dangerous to have around. Very insensitive, very uncaring. Source of a lot of harm so conventional religion that's it's been its function and up until a century or so ago that generally speaking for even for us in the west 
religion serve that purpose. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. There is that reality which is greater than me and my way. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That, if we say it with conviction, can help protect us against taking ourselves too seriously. Likewise, in the Buddhist world, uh, people who don't necessarily do a lot of contemplation or meditation and still observe the conventional practices of Buddhists and bowing and making offerings, and I go for refuge to the Buddha. I bow down to the Buddha. I make offerings to the Buddha. And and in so doing, this I is somewhat relativized and and there's a sense of protection against becoming self-obsessed. And, and in Buddhism, it's obviously different from the theistic religions where we don't project onto any outer reality, ultimate authority. But it does matter that we engage these practices with mindfulness, sensory straight and wise reflection. If we if we want to really be able to read this body and mind, if we really want to be able to accord with reality or to know Dhamma, as Ajahn Chah was saying. So as we move forward on this journey and start to hopefully get more interested in this, this body-mind here and now, we get more interested in it and start to ask more questions. This is those of you that are familiar with the Buddha's teachings on the seven factors of enlightenment. You know, it starts off with mindfulness, sati, and then goes on to dhamma vichaya, investigation of reality, asking questions. Sati, dhamma vichaya, virya, energy. We ask questions, it energizes us. Piti, joy, pasati, tranquility, samadhi, collectedness, then comes to fruition, the fruition of wisdom which expresses itself as upeka or equanimity. And this is of course, you know, these seven factors of awakening, this is not talking about awakening being not feeling anything, it's the equanimity of being able to accord perfectly harmoniously with everything. The wrong kind of equanimity, the wrong kind of upeka would be you know, just a sort of state of numbness and that's obviously not what the Buddha was pointing towards. The equanimity that the Buddha is referring to is the equanimity that comes with the wisdom that sees this body-mind experience as it actually is, free from the distortions of craving and hatred and confusion. But once again, this is, this is work. Hopefully it's not perpetually work and there are times that we can rest and refresh and renew and enjoy the benefits. But then, sooner or later, it'll be time to go back and look even deeper. Every time we suffer, every time we feel frustrated, every time we come up against an experience of limitation... 
that's a message. That's, this is the place to be looking for where we're creating obstructions. What are we doing in this body-mind that's creating a problem out of reality? Reality itself is not a problem. The Buddha lived in the same reality as we do. The great teachers live in the same reality as we do. And they don't have problems. Our problems are coming from something that we're adding to reality. So we get interested again, look more deeply, ask the right questions in the right way, and start to see for ourselves. Sometimes... Sometimes, personally, I'm asked, how come I came across Buddhist teachings? How did this good Presbyterian boy from Morrinsville in New Zealand end up committed to Buddhism? And, and well, first, I probably was never that good, but uh, it's true, I was a, brought up a Presbyterian in Morrinsville in New Zealand, and there weren't any other Buddhists around at least not that I was familiar with. And so sometimes I, when people ask that question, I say, oh, well, I came across this book. I was given this book on Buddhism. And that's not, actually, when I think about it, that's not the real answer. That's, that, was a, that was a pointing in a certain direction. That's true. And I was very pleased I was given that book. But... I would say that my real introduction to Buddhism came on my first meditation retreat. And it was being given these very simple exercises, simplifying life, keeping the eight precepts, observing noble silence, disciplining attention, watching the breathing, sitting, walking, meditation, sitting, walking, and then it just worked. And I still, to this day, this was many, many years ago, I still remember walking up and down on the meditation track and, and observing, noticing that there was a quality of peacefulness and there was just awareness or just knowingness. And then the question arose, and that was the key, that question. But who's aware or who knows? And that caused the precipitation to another level of ease and tranquility. And that, I would say, was my introduction to Buddhism. Asking the right question at the right time helps untangle the knots that we've caused through our habits of clinging, through our avoidance of life, through our inability to accord with what is in the moment, we create confusion. But it's not an obligation. And in this process of untangling, for instance, in this process of inquiring into who, it's important to understand we're not talking about dismantling the self. Sometimes people conflate two different issues here. It's important that we have a good enough sense of self. Psychotherapists will point out 
how much effort it takes and how much work it is required in the early stages of growing up as a human being to develop a sense of self. And we don't want to dismantle it. But what we do want to do is to keep growing. We don't want to just stay like a child with a sense of self. A seven-year-old child's got a sense of self. But a seven-year-old child you've got to still look after. And you don't want to have to look after somebody for their whole life. Ideally, a child will keep growing and turn into an independent, capable, contributing adult. That's what we'd like to see happen. That's, that's natural. And, and so it is with this relationship with the sense of self. Of course we need a sense of self, but what we need to look very closely at is our relationship to the sense of self. If we know how to read this body-mind, then we'll see how we very easily get pulled into identifying as the sense of self. But this conditioned sense of self, is, it's unreliable. It's always changing. I still feel like that boy who grew up in Morrinsville, something like 60 years ago. It's, it's a continuum. It's not like we got rid of that boy and replaced it with an adult. The child grows and turns into an adult. And the sense of self and our relationship to the sense of self, we need to look into this and see we don't have to find our sense of security by clinging to this perception of me and my way. Of course there's this perception of me and my way. That's natural. Potentially we can let go of that and, and abide as knowing that conditioned movement, that changing activity of the sense of self. And this is what the Buddha and the great teachers are encouraging us to towards seeing. We can let go of ourselves. doesn't mean to say we get rid of ourselves. That would, that would be really unfortunate. But certainly there's a transformation of our relationship with our sense of self. It's like with making pancakes. You know, in the beginning you need batter. But I don't know anybody who ever eats batter. You get a fridge load of bowls of batter and nobody's going to eat it. But you make pancakes. That's what you do with batter. You make pancakes. And likewise with this sense of self, when it gets properly cooked, as we mature, and that process of maturity is the, what's being referred to in the spiritual journey, is the relationship to that sense of self changes. Children are nearly all selfish. That's the part of the stage of development. That's why they need to be contained and cared for and looked after because they're out of control. They're not capable of controlling themselves. They need to be looked after for a good number of years. But then hopefully, eventually, they realise that yeah. insisting on getting their own way all the time and crying when they don't get their own way and stamping their feet when they don't get their own way, that's not necessary. You can have a perspective on that. And so it's that perspective that these teachings are referring to. Yeah. A mature, wise, clear perspective, that's the fruit of this path of practice. You know, as we 
do the spiritual work as we invest in cultivating mindfulness, sense restraint, wise reflections and all the other skills that we're all familiar with. You know, patience, kindness, gentleness, determination, resilience. And all of these ingredients come together to support us in this process of transforming our relationship with experience. Yeah. Not just the experience of a sense of self, but all experience. Yeah. All experience is up for examination. So thank you very much this evening for your attention. <laughs> Dhamma 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 Dhamma